Hi, and welcome to the History Respawned podcast. I'm your host, John Harney. This week's episode is extended audio from our recent video episode on Bioshock with our guest Robert Green II. This episode was a lot of fun to make, and I have to say, cutting it down to 15 minutes was pretty tough this time. History Respawn's editor-in-chief Bob Whitaker joined us as well, and the three of us had a great conversation. This has been edited only lightly and not for content. I hope that you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to History Respawned. I'm your host, John Harney. Our game this episode is Bioshock, an alternative history-slash-horror game from designer Ken Levine. Set in the underwater city of Rapture in 1960, the game takes the player through the imagined utopia of businessman, demagogue, and holder of a fervent worldview deeply reminiscent of the work of Ayn Rand, Andrew Ryan. Ryan built Rapture to be a refuge from what he saw as the petty and unreasonable limitations of mid-20th century American society, where unfettered choice and capitalist enterprise would create and sustain the perfect society. Things go wrong. The game was released in 2007 and was an instant critical and commercial hit, followed by two sequels and enjoying phenomenal influence on games produced since. 2K released the remastered collection this month, and we've taken the opportunity to talk about it. I'm also joined today by the editor-in-chief of History Respond, Bob Whitaker. Hi there, Bob. Hey, John. How's it going? It's great to have you. This is fun. We're doing doing a, doing an episode together. Um, and I'm also quite excited to have our guest. Our guest for this episode is Robert Green II. Robert is a PhD candidate in history at the University of South Carolina. His research focuses on the intellectual and political history of post-World War II America. His dissertation, entitled The Newest South, African Americans, the American South, and the Democratic Party, 1964 to 1994, deals with the relationship between Southern black voters and the Democrats from the signing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 until the Republican victory in the U.S. House in 1994. Robert argues that this relationship between African Americans and the Democrats has shaped that party for a generation. Robert, welcome to History Respond. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're very happy to have you. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about. I'm excited to talk about Bioshock on History Respond. Bioshock draws upon the writing and philosophy of Ayn Rand, particularly her novel The Fountainhead. Robert, could you please give us a brief background on Rand and, and on objectivism a little bit more generally? Sure, definitely. So uh, Ayn Rand was a Russian-American philosopher and novelist. Um, she actually grew up in Russia and later the Soviet Union and moved to the U.S. in the 1920s. Um, and her philosophy of objectivism is very much based in an extreme form of individualism. It opposes things like collectivism, it opposes things like forced communism and statism. But for, for Rand, what's really important is the notion of self-worth and individuality. And so her philosophy deeply embraces laissez-faire economics. Uh, it embraces an extreme form of individual rights and liberty. And her objectivist philosophy has really been with uh, American philosophers and American politics, especially on the right, since around the 1940s. Um, I think that's, that's a good way to look at Rand's career and her relationship to American intellectual and philosophical history. Mm-hmm. Great. And so that brings us, I guess, on to Andrew Ryan, who is, I suppose, is it fair maybe to call him the antagonist of the Bioshock game? Certainly the, the city of Rapture is this kind of extension of Ryan's personality. Ryan really, at least in, as depicted in the game, 
Andrew Ryan has taken this idea and just kind of extended it out through every fabric of what the, how the society is supposed to work, right? And so this kind of unfettered commercialism, he sets himself up as a kind of a, a captain of industry, right? Or, well, I suppose he is a captain of industry. To what extent is the game in that sense echoing actual events that have happened in American history? I mean, the game is obviously, you know, it's it's alternative history. It, it, it's purely ficti- fictitious, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. It's speculative. Uh, but to what extent could we argue the game is drawing on or, or 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 kind of mirroring perhaps some kind of experience in the American past of businessmen or or people who who actively claim to be influenced by objectivism acquiring genuine roles of power or influence in this culture of the United States? No, that's a wonderful question, and I think you you hit the nail right on the head. Um, when Rand is writing her works like The Fountainhead, which was released in 1943, there is by that point a big anti-New Deal backlash among businessmen in the United States. And I think Andrew Ryan, you know, he's a businessman from the 1940s and 50s. He's very much that same vein of being a businessman who is opposed to government intervention in the economy. He's opposed to the New Deal. He's opposed to any sort of social democracy. And so it makes sense that Andrew Ryan is a character from this time period because he represents what was in reality a a staunchly anti-New Deal uh, business backlash that was around the 40s and 50s. You mm-hmm. see this, you see this, for instance, in the far right of the Republican Party in the 1940s and 50s. Um, you see it represented in things like the John Birch Society to an extent. Uh, but you also see it in the fact that you have more and more businessmen rallying together to take on the New Deal in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and even well into the 1960s. So I think what Ryan represents is a an American businessman, but to the extreme of what Rand really wanted to see businessmen do. Um, you think about her stories like The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. They're both novels that are very much about businessmen and individuals taking on what she saw and what objectivists saw as a collectivist society, as a status society that was far too beholden to the federal government and to the interest of what they would consider to be big government. Um, so you see, you see people like Andrew Ryan exist in the real world through these these uh, pro-business, anti-New Deal businessmen who are staunchly laissez-faire and are also deeply deeply opposed to american liberalism and a new deal so i mean how how galtian is andrew ryan do you think i mean do you feel that's kind of a pretty clear direct link so i i think with with andrew ryan um he is quite similar to people like howard Rourke, the protagonist in the fountainhead and john galt the protagonist in atlas shrugged um, he represents the ideal that Ayn Rand wants to see in American society, a man who embraces laissez-faire capitalism and economics, someone who is not only against um, getting assistance from the government, but is really just trying to look out for his or herself. Um, I think Ryan is really an example of that unfettered. That's the whole reason why Ryan has his own city that's set up by himself and with his followers and it's a good way to look at objectivism in a fictionalized world Mm -hmm. i mean robert i wonder if you could 
you know, talk a little bit more about the political position of business leaders in American history. I mean, I think Ayn Rand, of course, is famous for making, uh, you know, the businessman kind of the entrepreneur as the kind of the savior of America in her books. But there is this kind of running trend in American life in which we look to business leaders for advice on things outside of business. You know, we look for them for philosophical advice or how-to advice or self-help advice. And we also occasionally look to them, as many people in America today are looking towards Donald Trump, uh, for political salvation. What is, what is behind this trend in American history? That's, that's also a wonderful question. And I think a lot of that relates to first, the American ideal of individual liberties, individual freedoms. You, you see a businessman, and in American society, there's this idea that if you're a profitable, successful businessman, say Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates or even a Donald Trump, you're seeing in his campaign today, they're making themselves look like a self-made person, that mm -hmm. there's someone who has triumphed against all odds and made themselves quite wealthy. In American society, having a lot of wealth equates with being successful and it equates with being someone worth listening to. Mm -hmm. um, I would also go a step further and link it to older American ideas from the early republic of yeoman farmers, for instance, um, of people who are self-made farmers, individuals who are striking it out on the frontier, who are working hard and, and doing what they can to support their families. Um, it is a bit, of, a bit of a stretch, but at the same time, I think you see echoes of that today with, with modern businessmen. Um, you think about how people like Henry Ford or the Rockefellers or Andrew Carnegie and others have been held up in American history as exemplars of what a self-made man can do. Um, I can tell you from African-American history, you even see this with people like Booker T. Washington, for example, um, talking about pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps. You see this same kind yeah. of idea all across American history. Yeah. And you know, I'm glad you mentioned kind of uh, colonial America there because, I mean, there is something very colonial American about rapture itself. I mean, mm. you mentioned yes. uh, kind of how these business leaders kind of harken back to you know, what you might call a Calvinist uh, predestination idea about graceness. You know, these are people who are kind of, uh, you know, economically successful, which means that they are favored by God, which was a very familiar idea in the colonial time period. But also, I mean, a place like Rapture, uh, it has very much this kind of feeling of being uh, a city upon a hill, that this mm -hmm, is a place yes. where yeah. you can find refuge from a world that has gone wrong at least in your opinion, but also a place where you can perhaps build uh, a new great society, uh, an exemplar uh, society. And so I'm wondering, you know, is there any kind of any kind of city or any kind of place in history that's comparable uh, to rapture? Perhaps not being under the sea, of course, but <laughs> the same sort of idea, the same sort of motivation for building a, a separate society. No, that's, that's a wonderful question. And I think American history offers some really intriguing examples of that. Um, for example, the first thing that comes to mind for me is not so much one individual city, 
but it is the growth of suburbs in the 1950s and 60s. Mm, and yeah. Amer Americans often leaving the cities, and, and you look at the iconography behind suburbs at that time period, it's a white picket fence, it's it's a huge lawn, it's rolling green hills, things like that, that hark not only to nature, but also to this idea of being an individual, being out on the land by yourself. Um, I think in terms of, of other examples from American history, certainly think of the Mormons going to Utah as yes, an example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I would I would also submit ideas like African-Americans forming their own small cities in the South during the Jim Crow era uh, across the region that were just all Black cities. Um, so you see this example of a city on a hill existing separate from an unjust, a, a diseased society over and over in American history. And what I think is really intriguing is, as I mentioned, it crosses cultural lines, racial lines, and class lines over and over again. What it really interests me, I think, going back, and I've been playing the game in the remastered collection as well, just to kind of go off what you're saying there, Robert, when I uh, when I play the game now, and maybe I'm influenced by playing Bioshock Infinite relatively recently as well. Mm -hmm. In Bioshock Infinite, uh, Levine chooses to go extremely overt in talking about race. Yes, um, you could almost you could argue, some would argue, I think it might be even clumsy or crude. But then again, that's kind of the point, I suppose, of Bioshock Infinite. This idea. But when I was playing Bioshock now, I get this sense of this kind of an evocative of 1940s America and this sense. But this is a time, you know, during which, you know, you have the Great Migration is, I suppose, going on for most of the 20th century, right? This idea of, you just mentioned suburbs, making you think of white flight and all these ideas. I feel playing the game that there's kind of some interesting racial concepts that are implicit there, although he does explore them more explicitly later in Infinite. And I know Bob has a good point. We'll come to in a moment about um, the Jewish characters, the non-white Christian characters. But what do you feel about that, about this kind of idea of this world that Rapture has created and to what extent... For example, talking about Mr. Trump currently running for president, like where are the where are the borders, where are the gray areas, the the lines of elision between race and these concepts of prosperity and class? No, that's that's a wonderful point. And I think it's looking at the city of Rapture and the Bioshock games, it is intriguing to think about how the philosophy of objectivism, if you look at it from a purely philosophical standpoint, doesn't really talk about things like race, class, or even gender. And yet, put into practice, it does have some practical effects on people, depending on their race, their social background, et cetera. So you see a city like Rapture being born out of, out of Andrew Ryan's critiques of 1940s American society. It's not surprising that he has a particular viewpoint on race that either ignores race or takes it into consideration, but then doesn't go very far with it. it. It seems that, again, if you're thinking about a laissez-faire system, everyone's um, fending for themselves, you really can't divorce that too much from other views on race in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, mm -hmm. where even though on the one hand you have more modern attitudes on race as it being a social or not biological construct coming out of the academy, for most Americans living at that time, it was still very much thought of as biological, that these are separate races that, you know, maybe African-Americans deserve a fair shake, but 
it's it's not something that most white Americans really wanted to do with unless it was staring them right in the face. And I think that's why Rapture is an interesting case study because, you know, it's an underwater city and it's a city that's planned out from the outset. And yet these ideas of objectivism and laissez-faire break down precisely because Ryan and other objectivists can't really think outside this ideological straitjacket that they're stuck in. Mm, yeah. I think what makes Rapture interesting to me is the ways in which it fails, you know, which mm -hmm. I think you're getting mm -hmm. to, Robert. I mean, like you said, this is a planned society. Uh, it's one that, you know, at least for the people who are moving there, apparently have, you know, the best intentions. Uh, but you still can't escape some of, you know, the realities of humanity. You know, I mean, when they move to Rapture, they uh, have the best ideals. They have the ideas that they're going to have, um, you know, free economy, free artistry and whatnot. And yet they still have problems like uh, crime, you know, with uh, Frank Fontaine's character. Mm -hmm. uh, and yes. they uh, yes. attempt to remake their bodies uh, with, uh, Adam, with this, uh, you know, gene splicing, uh, technology, and yet they go too far and it turns into drug addiction basically. Uh, so I think, you know, it seems to me that the lessons that Ken Levine is pushing is that you, you can't really escape human nature with ideology. No, I think you're, you're exactly right there. And, you know, playing through the game now, actually, it's interesting when you say that, Bob, what has intrigued me as I'm playing it again, and I'd forgotten the structure of the game. Um, because as much as I remember when the game came out, people would criticize it for the, the vital life chambers and it was being quote-unquote too easy and all this kind of stuff. But um, you have this balkanization of the problems into different kind of parts. So early on in the game, you have to locate and defeat uh, basically the surgeon who's gone insane uh, and is, you know, basically scarring people, you know, deforming them. And later on, you meet these different kind of tiers. And of course, then you have um, kind of a, a quasi ally, ally with Tellenbaum later on. Mm -hmm. And it's already kind of intriguing yes. to me, as you say, Bob, the whole thing has kind of fallen apart, um, which is a pretty kind yeah. of overt statement on Levine's part. And even going through the game and having these, you know, uh, vending machines that don't work and the extent to which this has been capitalized and there's a lovely little message early on over the tannoy uh you know that we've heard that people are hacking these machines and we want to remind you that commercialism and the, the sweat of one's brow this is the lifeblood of rapture and all this kind of stuff yeah um, central but, to the whole experiment yeah it's funny i mean you know the whole game is built around these objectivist ideas mm -hmm. um but you know, I think <laughs> this game works well as an advertisement against objectivism and for, you know, as Robert was saying, for these kind of New Deal uh, regulations, mm -hmm. really. I mean, right. you know, you think about the society in which the artist, uh, the doctor has free reign over their field. And you could see, you know, with a little bit of a push, uh, how things could go terribly wrong. You know, how you could get a surgeon who's going off and doing unnecessary surgeries. Uh, you can see... Uh, the economy going off the rails without some sort of uh, government uh, regulation. Uh, and basically, this this game ends up, you know, it's set in an objectivist world, but it ends up being a great advertisement for kind of modern federalist ideas about how a society should be run and regulated by a federal government. Yeah, and that actually, I'd like to ask you, Robert, about that, because when I'm thinking of it, the point you made earlier, the city on the hill concept, Ryan is clearly trying to create like a laboratory or community for his own 
his own particular view of American exceptionalism, you know, what's he escaping? You know, there's a point early in the game where, you know, you're confronted by this large image of Ryan as he speaks to you over a speaker and he says, are you from the KGB or are you from Washington? And, you know, he's equating the Soviets, you know, with what he sees as the disgraceful kind of, you know, collectivism of the American government. So you mentioned already earlier on this idea of anti-collectivism, anti-New Deal. What is this horrific regime that he's trying to escape? Yeah, I, I think that that part in the game also I, I found a bit humorous. Um, I've always thought it was also funny that the man doing the voice of Andrew Ryan was Armin Shimmerman, who's best known as Quark from Deep Space Nine. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, and the Ferengi, who are the, the great capitalists of Star Trek. But, Indeed. But I think in terms of what Ryan is speaking against, for many on the far right, and, and I think it's important to distinguish the far right of the 40s and 50s from, say, mainstream conservatives in the two-party system at that time, for many of them, they saw the New Deal, they saw Soviet Union, and even to an extent Nazi Germany as all part of the same part of the same coin, so to speak. Maybe different sides of it, but they all saw them as being collectivists, as being exemplars of overarching uh, government. For example, during the Second World War, you had many Southern politicians in the United States who argued that the war was actually won uh, for states' rights. And you see this, this argument picked up by modern Southern historians like Jason Morgan Ward uh, and, and others who talk about the South during World War II. And they would say, well, on the one hand, we're fighting these big governments of Nazi Germany and, and Imperial Japan abroad, and fascist Italy abroad. But at home, we're towing, we're fighting the line against overarching New Deal governments like uh, FDR's uh, central government in Washington, D.C. And so for many conservatives, they felt that, at least right-wing conservatives, they felt that the New Deal in the United States was at best a gateway to full-scale collectivism and at worst, an American version of this collectivism they had seen in the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. I think what's what's really intriguing about the Bioshock games is they also remind us of just how ideological the 20th century mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. um, and how these ideological extremes seem, I think, somewhat crazy to us now. But in the 40s and 50s, there were serious thinkers who were taking things like objectivism quite seriously. Yeah, I'm teaching a class on Vietnam now, and we're looking at, you know, America and France versus Vietnam in the 1940s. And, you know, you can see President Eisenhower talking about domino theory and all these things. And it's such an interesting experience speaking to undergraduates to try and explain to them. It's easy to be jaded, you know, and to scoff mm -hmm. at domino theory or to, to scoff at the idea this was an existential threat, even beyond the threat of nuclear warfare. But this this was the 20th century. And Andrew Ryan, of course, as a character, is the ultimate ideologue. His his demise is whatever you can say about him. He's uh, he's committed to the ideal, right? <laughs> Definitely. Yes, he is to the very end. So, Robert, uh, Ken Levine, in the wake of the release of the remastered version of Bioshock, has been doing a few interviews. And uh, he did one recently with uh, Chris Sullentrop. Uh, in which he stated that um, the game really reflected his own opinion about the course of history in the 20th century. Uh, and in particular, he believes that, quote, oppressed people tend to become themselves oppressors. Uh, and that this idea is reflected in Bioshock itself by the presence of post-Holocaust Jews 
in the building and running of Rapture. And this includes uh, the character of Tenenbaum, uh, who is the kind of primary researcher of uh, Adam, uh, the gene uh, technology, uh, but then also Andrew Ryan uh, himself. And I'm just kind of wondering, what do you think of this idea of Ken Levine's that oppressed people tend to become oppressors themselves? What do you think of his kind of cynical view of the 20th century? I think it's a, a rather interesting and intriguing take on the 20th century, and I think it has some validity to it. Um, you, I think the Bioshock games, if you look at them as a as one long continuous saga or narrative, it's, to me at least, really about how the extremes on the right and the left can be so destructive. And so with a place like yeah. Rapture, for instance, and how Rapture is a city on a hill, if you really take that idea to its extreme, you think everything around it is a threat, and you even start to believe other citizens within Rapture can be a serious threat if they don't toe the line. Uh, now, I, I do think, mm -hmm. in, in some ways, what Levine is doing in his games, in an indirect way, is talking about the creation of whiteness in American society, how people... Mm in the 20th century, late 19th through the 20th century, who were not considered white, Jewish Americans, Italian Americans, Irish Americans, et cetera, during the course of the 20th century, due to things like the Second World War, industrialization, and urbanization, they become seen as, as white. Now, are they oppressors? I'm not sure if, if they are oppressors so much as they are part of an oppressive system. Um, they may not be cognizant of the fact or they may be aware of that and they may be questioning themselves about it. But I do think it is an interesting analysis of American history of how people can become part of the system, part of the problem, even if they are not aware of it, especially if they're not aware of it. You know, this talk reminds me, Robert, of a great previous episode that Bob did with Jonathan Hunt on the game Fallout 4. And they had this really great conversation mm, about... Yes the 1950s aesthetic that the Fallout universe kind of engages with. And obviously within that universe, there's very specific parameters to it, right? And the way that it persists. But Bioshock, the first Bioshock game in particular, has this wonderful, I think, coming together of theme and imagined setting, you know, of a, of a New Year's Eve party that went all wrong. Right, uh, and, and 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 you come along, you come along a year later in 1960, and you're coming along at the very end, of, or, or you know, this community that has kind of kept alive this idea of the 1940s and kind of missed the 1950s, which is this whole interesting phase in American life and American memory, right? Yes. What do you think of the way that the Bioshock game, I guess the first two, um, reflect this idea of the 1940s, and even more generally, I'd, I'd love to hear what you think about how in American history we 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 create these eras, right? Like post-war, 1950s, late 1960s, right? You know, counterculture, yes. even into the culture wars in the 1990s. This kind of periodization fascinates me. Um, and I'd love to hear what you think about it and how Bioshock engages with that. No, I think that's, that's really important. And if you think about periodization of the 40s and 50s, for instance, um, you know, as historians, we can all admit how problematic periodization is. Um, if you're someone who came of age during the Second World War, say you're a 20-year-old who went off to fight at Normandy in 1944, you come home, you get the GI Bill, you raise a family in the late 40s and early 50s, for someone like yourself, you're not seeing it as separate eras per se, but you are mm -hmm. recognizing the fact that your life has changed. And 
if you think about the era that Rapture represents, how it skips the 50s entirely, uh, I think Andrew Ryan is an interesting character for whom skipping the 50s is really important. So when Ryan leaves American society in the mid-1940s, right around the end of World War II, um, he is also missing uh, the beginnings and really the worst of McCarthyism, which yep. in some ways he he himself represents, and he's a reminder that the undercurrents of McCarthyism were always there from the get-go. But he also misses the 1950s economic boom. Uh, he misses the fact that there's a reason why objectivism does linger in the 50s, but most Americans are just fine with Social Security, they're just fine with the New Deal. I mean, you mentioned President Eisenhower earlier. Uh, on the one hand, Eisenhower is presiding over the United States in the Cold War, but he's also presiding over the United States that has, in the 50s at least, come to grips with the New Deal and said, New Deal is actually fine. Uh, you know, we're, we, yeah. we might not go much further with it, but we're fine with Social Security, we're fine with unions. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Eisenhower himself had that famous letter to his brother where he says anyone on the right who wants to get rid of Social Security and, and things like that are basically idiots and they'll die off politically within a generation <laughs> or two. Uh, and, of course, that doesn't actually happen. But I do think this this periodization, the fact that Ryan, you see Ryan's rapture in 1960 and how he has taken a an isolated version of, of 1940s America and miss the 50s, I think, is a really intriguing part of that game. You know, one one wonders what the game would look like with that more fallout-like aesthetic of the 1950s and all the baggage that comes with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, also in that, uh, he misses the civil rights movement, or at least mm. the, the post-war yes. civil rights movement. You know, you get, uh, you know, kind of this, the end of the wartime emergency, and, you know, Ryan leaves, I think, in the middle of the war, right after the end of the war. Uh, but he misses, you know, the kind of attempts to negotiate uh, the uplift of a group of people who have been held down, you know, under this society. And, you know, how quickly that changes coming out, you know, during the Korean War. And then, of course, you've got uh, Brown versus Board in 1954. Uh, and all of that, you know, what that leads to. So, I mean, I think you could see kind of the fissures that develop in rapture are a reflection of how that negotiation process never actually took place and it, it ends in extreme violence precisely i mean the fact that rapture is a city that doesn't have an actual government that tries to do everything by lies a fair economic uh, rationale means that you're going to have a difficult time answering these questions in some ways what what rapture is really saying is that if we entrust everything to the free market as Ayn Rand objectivists wanted to do and trust everything to individualism and pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, then the structures in a society that say, well, no, we're all in this together are not there to alleviate some of these problems. Yes. Yeah. And you see this with, you know, you're picking up these audio logs throughout the game and essentially all these elements just kind of turn against each other. It's interesting because as much as Levine is definitely seems to be endorsing kind of the New Deal, you know, Federalist kind of consensus post-war order, I guess, he seems pretty uh, pessimistic in the sense or almost Hobbesian in the sense of like, listen, people are going to grab their chance of power. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like it all like, you know, is, is there is there a sense, is there an argument that objectivism is 
too utopian or too optimistic as opposed to being too kind of too hard on people? Do you, do you know what I'm trying to say? No, I think you're exactly right. I think objectivism, if you were to talk to someone who believes in objectivism, like Ayn Rand or her followers, which included, by the way, a young Alan Greenspan, he was a, an objectivist early in his life. Um, for them, objectivism is very much an optimistic attitude on life. It says that we actually trust people to do what they think is best. It is it is hyper-individualized, and it is very much focused on the individual, but what they're saying is we actually trust the individual to do things beneficial for themselves and, by extension, to benefit society by doing what is best for themselves. So it's yeah. it's quite— it's quite ideological and it's quite optimistic about what human beings can do. Uh, but I think what Levine is doing in this game is saying, well, and I think in the Bioshock games as a whole, what he's saying is these things sound good on paper, um, but even in isolated societies, they don't quite work out for these reasons. Yeah. And, you know, objectivism is often referred to as an aspirational philosophy. You know, just like Robert said, yes. this is something that, you know, we hope might eventually take place, but it's not there yet. And I think that's reflected directly in Rand's works in which she has to make up uh, a fictional character as an exemplar of a future American society. She can't simply pull one out of the American past mm -hmm. and say, hey, look, this is a guy who had it right. You know, she has to literally write fiction. Whereas, you know, if her philosophy had any you know, basis in reality, she could have just drawn somebody from the American past or even from the 1930s or 1940s. And uh, those type of people just didn't exist. No, exactly. You're right. They, they didn't exist. And, and so she had to create people who were you know, like Howard Rourke and, and most notably John Galt, people who in some ways were like superheroes for objectivism. Yeah. You know, they were they were. They were men who who stood out from the rest of society and triumphed against all odds. I, I think, by the way, I do want to mention one other book that she wrote called Anthem, which is not talked about as much, but it was a, a it was one of her earliest works. It was a science fiction novel. And um, I think she wrote it in the late 20s, early 1930s, early 40s. And it was set in the far future. And in that book, the whole goal is these people live in a collectivized society where the state runs everything. And the, the main characters in the book have to essentially rediscover the meaning of the word I or the letter I. And so mm -hmm. they go on this quest to find things from the, the, the distant past. Um, it is a lot like the, the novel written by um, Soviet science fiction author, um, and his name is currently escapes me, the man who wrote We. Um, it's very much in that same vein of trying to discover what life was like in the past and trying to find an individualized past. Um, and so Rand, like you guys have already mentioned, she is very much trying to create a person who represents these ideals because it simply doesn't exist. Um, and by the way, the man who wrote We was Yevgeny Zamantin, who wrote in 1921. Rand's novel Anthem is very similar to that one. This is fascinating to me, Robert, because... When I think of the Bioshock series as a whole, and I, I kind of want to stick to the first game as much as possible, but just to kind of mm -hmm. mention that, you know, in the series as a whole, there are these interesting themes and this idea, the extent to which Ken Levine is working out perhaps his own reactions to the Tea Party movement, for example, right? Right very early in the 21st century, as we can now start to call it, and all these ideas. I'm I'm really interested, as I always am with the games we cover, in how Bioshock now persists 
as a kind of a piece of material culture of its time and how we're talking about objectivism and how we're talking about the work of Ayn Rand. So earlier in the conversation, you did a, you did a lovely job talking about kind of the context uh, of her work and the appeal of her work, and in particular, how her work found a home among certain constituencies in the American political landscape. What do you think about objectivism now, you know, or, or, or its legacies, perhaps, might be slightly more accurate? Like, how, how do you feel about, you know, because Bioshock in its own way is interacting with this legacy of objectivism? Well, I think what's interesting about Bioshock as a game and as, as you mentioned, a piece of material culture is that it, it's released in the year 2007. So it's, it's released before the election of Barack Obama, before the rise of the Tea Party. And yet what I think it really symbolizes is how the subjectivist philosophy has always been on the margins of American society, but it's it's never really completely left American society either. It's always lingering in the background. And I think what I think Bioshock now a decade later, it's crazy to think it's actually a decade, almost yes, a decade it is. now since oh, it came out. So I feel so old. <laughs> but but, but at the same time, it it's interesting to think about how this particular game is actually more relevant now than it was 10 years ago in terms of, of talking about ideology and what Americans really think. You know, the current, the 2016 election in many ways is a question of, is America still a city on a hill? Has it ever been a city on a hill? Um, if you're trying to make America great again, as uh, Donald Trump, the, the stand-in for Andrew Ryan in this election is trying to do, <laughs> <laughs> um, then, then, it, then at some point in the past, you're saying America was great, and then at some point it fell off. Well, the question becomes, when did that fall off occur? When did, mm -hmm. when did America suffer its own version of the fall? And I think if you ask people who are supporting Trump, the question, the answer to that might be the 1960s, uh, the period where Bioshock, a character who's from the 50s, he enters Rapture in 1960, right before, right as Rapture is going through this crisis, and right before the United States enters a decade, or really two decades, of social upheaval. So I, I think with, with objectivism and Bioshock, like any piece of, of great art, of great literature, it asks questions that remain timeless and that stick with us. Uh, Bioshock is no different, and it it poses questions about objectivism, but it also poses questions about American society, because Americans, at least in our own exceptionalist narrative, we like to think of ourselves as being different from the rest of the world, we like think of ourselves as being the ultimate sitting on a, on a hill. But as we've already discussed, in the 1940s, that debate was that that question was seriously being asked about the U.S. being perfect again, in opposition to Nazi Germany and the Soviet mm -hmm. Union as well. But then in the 1960s, which is right where Bioshock picks up in 1960, the 60s and 70s are a time period where the city on a hill itself is having these societal upheavals over whether or not it's actually that great city after all. And so I think Bioshock really speaks to these deeper American questions of exceptionalism and also of how America sees itself and how America thinks of itself as, as being great in the past or hopefully great in the future. Yeah, I think you're right about the city on the hill narrative leaving in the 60s and 70s. But it's always interesting to me that that narrative came back by, you know, brought back 
by Ronald Reagan uh, mm-hmm. in his mm-hmm. uh, speeches. And of course, Reagan himself uh, could be said to be maybe not an objectivist with regards to all of his policies, but definitely with economics was leaning in that direction uh, with some of the deregulation of the economy and in particular of the, the cuts to taxes uh, during his presidency. So I think, like you said, it's kind of one of these things these ideas that's always on the margins, but never is never really left. Uh, and, you know, it kind of begs the question of, you know, how is it going to iterate in the future? No, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, again, objectivists were always on the outskirts, but you have to also think about the objectivists and how they're tied to other thinkers in the 40s and 50s. I think of people like Ludwig von Mises, for instance, uh, and other far-right intellectuals from the Austrian School of Economics who were all competing against, in the, the realm of ideas, the, the idea of the New Deal and later on the Great Society, they're arguing against these social democratic regimes that they see as, as really strangling individual merit and, and will to work. Um, so again, I think Bioshock is a really interesting case study in in what that ideology looks like and how it tries to create a perfect world that in fact is is far from perfect. Mm. Well, I I think a, I think a good last question is uh, if you were in a counterfactual presidential uh, election and you had to choose between Andrew Ryan and Donald Trump, where would you go? (laughs) You know, I think that's, uh, that's what I like to call a nightmare. (laughs) Uh, On the other hand, I I think at least, well, look at it this way. If if you'd have an Andrew Ryan versus Donald Trump election, we do at least have a record of what Ryan would do as president, which is not a very good one. So suddenly Trump would not look so bad. But Mm. I think the answer to that question would be how in the world did we get to that point as a country? Mm. Um, where objectivism is actually part of the national conversation to an extent that it never has been before. Mm. Um, on the other hand, you could also argue perhaps Ryan having enough money to build his own city proves he's a better businessman than Trump, Ooh. but that's neither <laughs> here nor there. Oh, well, so it sounds like we're going to go with the devil we know. rather. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Donald Trump would like that point about Andrew Ryan be more successful financially, but you know. <laughs> but hey, listen, Donald, if you're a fan, you know, spread the word, tweet about us. We're okay with that. Hey, look, Donald, make make Rapture great again. Come on. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Robert, for being such a great guest. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much for having me. No, and thank you too, Bob, for joining us for this episode. It was fun. Hey, to have it's you. my pleasure. Yeah. That was our conversation on Bioshock. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed talking about the game. If you're new to the podcast, you can find us on iTunes or on SoundCloud. And this is the podcast for a YouTube video series, which you can find at youtube.com slash history Please consider visiting our website also and supporting us through the Patreon. Also, if you've been listening for a while, if you're enjoying the content, if you particularly like the fact that we're stepping up how frequently you're putting these out, that's very nice to hear. Um, you can let us know by contacting us on Twitter at, at History Respawn. You could also consider leaving a positive review for us on iTunes. 
I'm told by reliable sources, many people are saying that good iTunes reviews help reach new listeners. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.